Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show seeks to unravel the dynamic world of research at the university by discussing the significance to and benefits of research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community Queen's Radio in Kingston, located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. Today my guest is Laura Murray. Laura Murray, PhD Cornell 1993, is Professor of English and Cultural Studies at Queen's University. She has published and taught extensively in Indigenous Studies, United States Literature, Copyright Law, and Cultural Policy, and has long been engaged in community arts and political activism. Her books include To Do Good to My Indian Brethren, The Life and Writings of Joseph Johnson, and Canadian Copyright, A Citizen's Guide with Sam Trosso. Did I say that right? Trosso. Trosso, okay. Currently, she is director of the Swamp Ward and Inner Harbor History Project. This project, working through oral history, community events, and archival research, is intended to resist certain glorifying and limiting trends in the way Kingston has presented its history. She is also engaged in research into the treaty history of Kingston in the light of broader scholarship on colonialism and decolonization. With Principles Dream course funding, she designed and teaches Settler and Indigenous Stories of Kingston Cataraqui, and this year she will initiate a new graduate course in the English department called Writing in the World that will help students to write effectively for various audiences. She served as Program Coordinator of Cultural Studies for the past two years and is currently the Chair of the Steering Committee of Cultural Studies. Hi, Laura. Hi, Barry. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Let's jump right in with our first question. What are some of the benefits and challenges of studying oral history? Well, the benefits are that you get to hear from and about people who haven't written stuff down or whose live materials haven't been donated to archives. And really, that's most of us, right? So it seems to me that the catchment possibilities for oral history are huge. And I guess another thing about it is that you can learn about things that are happening right up to the present. You know, I say history began yesterday. Archives don't usually begin yesterday. There's usually kind of a gap in time before things get put in archives. And uh, oral history is really continuous with the present and allows you to connect the past and the present. Um, so I, th- I think it's a powerful tool. Um in terms of its challenges, interviewing is hard. Uh, you've got to gain the trust of the people you're talking with and uh, let them tell their own stories. Uh, the whole principle of oral history is that you don't have a set list of questions. You don't try to interfere. You try to say as little as possible, actually. And for a person like me who likes to talk, that's been quite a discipline. And uh, you, you kind of nudge people along and, and encourage them, but you try not to steer them very much. So that that's difficult. Another issue is, of course, that people don't remember certain things or they misremember certain things or... Maybe there are things they don't want to talk about. But again, that's 
sort of part of history, too, is that we retell it as we live it. And uh, it's always really interesting to see the things people want to talk about and the things that they're reluctant to talk about. Right, right. I think, it's it, to me, it's a fascinating area of exploration. And I think uh, hearing people's stories is, is uh, just intrinsically interesting. Uh, but I think as a researcher, th- there might be two other kinds of things that you have to encounter. Is how do you recruit these people? Where do you find them? How do you convince them that this they should give their time to to be interviewed and then another question would be how do you know if you're getting balance about what the story is being you know how how the story is being conveyed well recruiting happens i guess you know social scientists call it snowballing you know you meet one person and you ask for suggestions uh it also happens when i identify certain events or places or um, issues that, you know, I know I want to hear about, and so I can dig people up that way. Uh, literally, sometimes I recruit people by walking around the streets. <laughs> like, huh. I I was walking around in a park with my audio producer telling him about some things, and a woman was walking her dog, and it was quite apparent that she was eavesdropping. And so eventually, either he she said something or I said something, and she said, you know, I really think you need to talk to my dad. And um, we did, and he's one of our really important um, uh, participants, actually. And we had a listening party for participants last week, and he brought his daughter. I said, hey, you got to tell everybody how we got your dad into this project. What a terrific story. You're resourceful and uh, literally out on the street. That's terrific. I think that when you do research in your own town, you know, there's that kind of embeddedness. Um, I'm available to people, and I, in a way, I'm, I'm always at work. Wonderful. Tell me a little bit more about the the. Swamp Ward project, and, and, and maybe you can relate one of your favorite stories um, and explain why it's your fa- one of your favorite stories. I don't think I could choose a favorite story, but I think um, the, the, the big story that kind of a, uh, arises across all the interviews is that this area of town, which is north of Princess Street, up by the river, um, was a it's the oldest part of Kingston, both in terms of Indigenous and settlement history. But it, it kind of gets sidelined uh, when we think about historic Kingston. We tend to think about the Sydenham Ward, which has been quite prettified and gentrified. It, too, was a working-class area, an industrial area, but you don't tend to remember that. The Swamp Ward, as it's known, there's no, no such thing as Swamp Ward on a map. But uh, when people say Swamp Ward, it's not quite clear exactly what area they refer to, and, and our, our project kind of explores the different uh, views that way. But they're talking about this area north of Princess that's been really highly stigmatized um, and thought of as, uh, you know, poor, dangerous, dirty, and that kind of thing. It's changing. The southern boundary of the stigmatized area in Kingston is shifting northwards, but we still have this idea sort of north is uh, um, less respectable than south. That's the way our geography works. And, you know, to think about broader research questions, cities all around the world have similar kinds of issues. Sometimes the divisions are based on race or religion, or um, but there's there's often kind of you know the the places that are um, deemed to be more respectable and the places that are less. But I think the the the, the big research story is that uh, this area in 
from the 19th century up until the 1970s anyway, was a thriving commercial community with lots of schools, with lots of churches, with lots of businesses. And the people who lived here then uh, had no sense that there was anything wrong with their neighborhood. They didn't want to go anywhere else. And to them, it was the center of the world and the center of the town. They learned when they went south of Princess Street that they were thought of a bit askance. But they didn't have any self-esteem issues, you know, living where they did. And uh, that comes through really clearly that uh, the economics of this area, it was where the industrial center of the town was, and all these people lived there, and they could live just there. They didn't have to feel like they were second fiddle to anybody else. Was the Swamp Ward homogeneous? Was it, when, you say, when you say working class, I sort of have this idea of... You know, people in overalls and going marching to a factory with their lunch buckets or something like that. But there's got to be retail merchants and and, uh, manufacturers and things. Were there ethnic pockets within the swamp ward? And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. There was a lot of ethnic diversity, but it's interesting. This is a small town. So whereas in a bigger city, you might have a whole neighborhood that was all Jewish or all Ukrainian. Here, uh, there's much more mixture. And I find that quite fascinating. So yeah, there were a lot of Ukrainians, um, Italians, Portuguese, Jews, Catholics and Protestants. Um, and uh, there sometimes was some tension between these different groups, especially, I would say, between the Catholics and the Protestants. Hmm. Um, but they all kind of lived amongst each other. So, uh, you you know, if you, if you weren't Jewish, you'd go to the Jewish store to buy your shoes and you'd meet Jewish people. Or um, if you were Jewish, you'd be playing in the park with, uh, you know, with with some Catholics or whatever. Um, So it was mixed. Uh, There were certainly a lot of small merchants and sort of small tradespeople, people doing welding or tinsmithing and so on. And there were people working at the tannery and the uh, woolen mill and these kinds of large industries. The owners of these large industries didn't live in this neighborhood. Uh, So it wasn't all uh, factory laborers, but it was all people who were... um, you know, without capital, basically without large capital. You buy a little corner store, you would work in it 364 days a year, and you could make a living. Um, But most people were not, you know, growing huge enterprises uh, from that work. These are important stories uh, to to weave into the the larger sort of facade of what Kingston is, you know, the city where innovation and history thrives. Uh, I'm going to turn to our last question in this segment of the show. In your opinion, what is the relation between teaching and research and community work and research? Well, of course, it would be different for different researchers. For me, I I kind of... uh I do the community work and the teaching sometimes before I, I finalize the academic output. So whereas other people would, you know, write for a university press or a journal, and then they'd get around to thinking, oh, how do I share this with a broader public? Um, I, I've kind of worked the other way around. So with my copyright project, I worked on that for about 10 years, and I had a website um, in which people submitted questions about the state of Canadian copyright. And uh, they didn't have, at the time, this is early 2000s, they didn't ha- have a source of information if they weren't lawyers about this. So they wrote to me, and then I talked to various other people, and I, I ended up 
you know, being a kind of clearinghouse. And from that website, I learned a lot about what people didn't know about copyright. And then that allowed me to write a book about copyright. So I gathered, you know, that information from the public and then turned it into research. And in some ways, that's what I'm doing with this history project as well, is that I'm working very much with the community. um, And I don't quite know what the academic output will be in the end. Right now, I'm doing these podcasts, I do a lot of walking tours, and the academic output will follow. I have the luxury of doing that. I'm tenured, you know, and the academic output may have to do about the methodologies that we've developed or the larger implications about um, history and memory and heritage. Um, but uh, it will follow uh, the engagement uh, with, with the community. I use the same thing with teaching. I'm doing a course right now about the treaty history of Kingston. I'm really learning with the students, and that will eventually lead to publication. One of the goals for Blind Date with Knowledge is to demystify scholarly research and to personalize researchers. As a way of making that goal real for us, I ask every guest on the show to tell us a joke, recite a short poem, or inspirational quotation, or reference a song related to the research or the researcher's motivation. So, Laura, the microphone is yours. <laughs> well, I don't tell jokes because I never remember the punchlines. Uh, I think uh, you, you've gotten quite a lot of the personal from me in a way, and uh, what I'd like people to hear is a little bit of the voices of our recordings that we're doing. So this is Isabel Gordon. She's in her 90s, and she's recalling her experiences in World War II. Let me play that clip. One of the boys in the orchestra used to come to our place. He was one of the, you know, the RAF servicing the airplanes. But yeah, he used to come. He and uh, there were five of them, I think, used to come and he played the piano and there was one fellow with them. So he was going to sing a song and we thought, oh, you know, just be a song. And, And he sang, Trees. I think that I shall never see a poem lovelier Okay, <laughs> but it has a beautiful voice, oh, a lovely voice. So we were all amazed at uh, at how this fellow could sing. Can you share with us what this clip means to you and why this clip is significant to your research? Well, we have a, a podcast episode about World War II in Kingston, and one of the things that struck me in looking through all our interviews is that the experience of men and women was very different. That's not terribly surprising, uh, but it was it was what was surprising was the texture of it. So this girl, she had four sisters, and her mother was widowed, and uh, while all the Kingston boys were off in the trenches somewhere, there were all these handsome pilots from New Zealand and England, and they were training in Kingston. And so the girls were actually having a great time. Um, And the music was a really big part of that. They were going to dances every night. So you asked for a song and there you got this really, (laughs) you know, emotional thing that was just making the girls swoon. So in that episode of the podcast where we talk about the war, um, I really try to emphasize all the kind of contradictions and complexities. So some of the guys who went to war came home triumphant. Some of them didn't come home. Uh, They were really aware that World War One, the communities were really aware that World War One had been terrible. So as they entered into World War Two, they weren't really jingoistic. There's just a lot of different varieties of experience and doubt 
and fear and pride. And I really try not to reduce that to one message in the documentary. And um, so those girls, they remember, they remember the war as a really happy time. Well spoken. Thank you. My guest in this episode of Blind Date with Research has been Laura Murray, Professor of English and Cultural Studies at Queen's University. If you have a question about anything related to research that you would like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's conversation with Laura Murray, please email me, Barry Kaplan at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thank you very much for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.